0: This is RDQI.
1: Hey, Ryan, do you ever think that you were born in the wrong decade?
0: No. No, I really, uh, no. Not at all. But that's a, that's a good question. No? No, I mean, well, I should say that, um, I'm a middle child. Let's go there first. So I generally play the peacekeeper type adapting to the situation. So to me, I'm always just playing off of the environment that's around me, um, which is a simplistic version of who I am. But that's kind of where I come from. So to me, I don't idealize those you know past moments in time so much. How about you though?
1: No, I think you and I are very very similar in that regard. We're definitely people that you know when life gives us lemons, we make lemonade. you know you I, you and I are definitely just very adaptable people and we tend to take life as it comes. But do you think that that there are people who, because, because that's a, it's a common it's a common thing to hear. I mean, I've heard a number of people in my life tell me, oh, I wish I would have been born in the '60s," or "I wish I would have been born in you know." It's usually the '60s or '70s, right, right, right. <laughs> or the- uh, you know, during the, the the flower child, flower power, sure, era. of
0: course, yeah, yeah, yeah. That idealized moment in culture.
1: Do you think that's a a valid? Yeah. Do you, Do you think that's a valid?
0: statement uh, i mean yeah sure you can think that way if you want to as an individual i'm not gonna you know um rain on your parade i would if you're a good friend and you said that to me and like you were serious and you were melancholy because you felt like you were in the wrong place in time in that situation i might approach the conversation differently and remind that person that you don't know what the 60s were like you weren't there you know, assuming that this person wasn't alive then. So how can you say that you wish you were in the, like, the height of your, you know, your young life at that moment in time? To me, that seems frivolous. It's kind of like, yeah. I mean, especially, especially, like, let's be clear. If it's like a middle-class white dude that I'm talking to, it's like, sure, of course, any time in history and Western culture is probably good for you, you know? But very few women, I would say, or people of color who live in the Western world would probably be like, you know what? I just wish I can go back to 1855 Mississippi. You know, like it just doesn't, people forget that side of the coin. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I
1: I think, I mean, this is a thought exercise, but I think I I would keep it to people in, you know, contemporary people, right? People that you and I know. Mm -hmm or people alive sure. today who wish they would have been born in a past time. Yeah. Cause I think, yeah, you know, there's, we, we all hope for a brighter future in, in some way. Right. But that's, you know, so, so I, the reason I bring this, this question up is it, it, I was thinking about the movie midnight in Paris. Um, Oh, sure. and, Oh, who is the actor? Owen Wilson. Um, Owen Wilson is in Paris and he, something happens and he gets transported back to, you know, 1920s Paris and he's hanging out with Picasso and Hemingway and T.S. Eliot and James Joyce. Um, and I remember when I saw that, that that actually did kind of resonate with me because if if I had to pick a an alternate decade in a place to be born into 1920s Paris would probably be it sure. for me. Um, because, you know, I, I just devoured, um, you know, anything by Hemingway, anything by T.S. Eliot when mm-hmm. I was younger and, you know, Hemingway paints this, you know, very bohemian melancholy, but with a, you know, massive amount of adventure and excitement, um, picture of what paris was and and the fact that you know just you know they they ran in this community with with just you know the who's who of famous people from the 1920s oh, yeah. famous artists famous authors famous oh, poets yeah. famous you know people name. <laughs> yeah movable um,
0: feasts the sun also rises all those books oh it's it's wonderful i love them i'm right there with you <laughs>
1: right um but but you bring up a good point and and you know the the reason that appealed to me was because I was I mean I, I had not I I wasn't alive in the nineteen twenties. I don't know anybody who was, you know, in Paris in the nineteen twenties. I, I have no real idea what that was like. I think I know what it was like because of reading Hemingway. And maybe a few other things, but like 90% of, of how I view that period of time, in that decade, is through the eyes of Ernest Hemingway. Um, who is, you know, it, that would be suspect if he was trying to realistically describe what was happening. But he, you know, on top of it just being one person's opinion, it was also an artistic opinion. Sure. He wasn't trying to necessarily paint reality. He was trying to write a novel. So... My vision of that decade is, I mean, it's through the rosiest colored glasses you can imagine. <laughs> it's, it's, its by all definitions, uh, an idealistic and unrealistic state of mind. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, that was when I was younger. I kind of have since realized that, uh, you know, there's a lot of bad things that happened in Paris in <laughs> yeah, 1920s. Yeah, just a few. Um, there just was, a few. you know... Yeah. A decade later, it was there was uh, there's some problems, yeah, just a couple,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, you know, and and I mean, if you look back at how those people, how like Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway just kind of did whatever he wanted in Paris and you know, got an allowance from his parents, like, Mm I mean. And the dollar just, you know, compared to the franc was just outlandish that he could afford to live, you know, not a rich, ritzy lifestyle, but he didn't really have to work very no. hard.
0: No. I um, mean, he still worked very hard in his own way and <laughs> created beautiful works. We're not going to say that Hemingway was a, a slouch. But yeah, he he had a, an opportunity that most people did not at the time.
1: And, you know, medical science has advanced uh, a little <laughs> bit since the 20s. <laughs>
0: People live a little bit longer these yeah. days. Women survive childbirth way more so, frequently. Yeah, I'm following.
1: <laughs> women have the right to vote. Yeah, a just just things. a couple. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, my my personal feeling on it is is I don't think anybody at any point in history has ever thought about you know, oh, I live in 1920s Paris and this is the greatest decade and greatest place ever. I, I think there's there's problems everywhere and a desire to live in a different decade in a different a different time in a different place is is just based on on some sort of unhappiness with your current state and some just you know of an understandable impulse to just be in a different world, in a different world that seems better than the reality you face today. Sure.
0: I mean, even, you can even see that in Hemingway's writing. I mean, he, he constantly struggles with trying to figure life out, to understand what it even means. And he, he struggles with that constantly throughout his writing and makes it pretty self-evident. Um, I think another good example, to leave Hemingway by the side for a second... But George Orwell wrote during that period, too. And he wrote a book called Down and Out in Paris and London, which is a very, very different slice of life in Paris and London around the same time. And he was living more so at the bottom end of the uh, the social structure, if you will. And it's it, his writing comes off as hopeless. You know, it comes off as like this is there's no way to make oneself in this world, which, again, George Orwell is kind of like Hemingway. He had financial backing behind him. He was the one who decided like, oh, I'm going to leave my rich parents and just go live in Paris and try and slum it for a bit because I know I have a back door that I can always leave when I want to. And so he was writing about the common man. Mm-hmm. You know, so again, perspectives and bias need to be accounted for. But I tr- I'm following with you. I mean, there's something romantic about that period and something about looking through rose-colored glasses and leaving your current situation, whatever it is, To think about a different situation, there's always a release inside of that, you know? I mean, the adage, the grass is greener, is so relevant to this conversation.
1: Do you think that that feeling or that, that thought loop is healthy or unhealthy?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't think there's a binary answer to that. I don't think you can say yes or no. I think it's pretty gray. Um, I think the ability to escape through a story, um, whether it's reading Hemingway, whether it's reading J.R.R. Tolkien, um, escaping to a realm that quite literally just doesn't, in any sense of the word, exist. I think that can be healthy. Now, if it overtakes your sense of reality and you leave the moment and you can no longer function around people. I would say that's a problem. Probably not a good idea. Um, probably not healthy even. But I think there's a, I think there's a healthy dose of escapism that can be, be beneficial to an individual. Sure.
1: I mean, cause it- I, I'm going to bring up something. <laughs> I was going to bring up, I'm going to bring up something, uh, uh, a little embarrassing about both of us, but uh, I know both both of us were huge Redwall. Fans. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. Actually, you got me into Redwall. You were you were the person who you're like, you should read this book, and I was like, books? No. What can um, I say? <laughs> but but if I think back, I mean, I still have you know a a number of of hardcover. Brian Jakes, you know, Redwall books. And I remember when Brian Jakes died several years ago, you and I were talking about something completely unrelated, but we brought up, hey, did you hear Brian Jakes died? And you said, Yeah, I picked up the Long Patrol and I started reading it. And I said, No way. I picked up the Long Patrol and started reading it. Um But but those those books are, you know, and for those who don't know, they it's a it's a young adult, you know, fiction book about, you know, this fantasy world where um, mice and moles and rats and you know like these these critters basically inhabit the world and and you know are pretty much anthropomorphic for the most part, um, but they you know fight fight battles and the rats are the evil people and the mice are the good people, <laughs> um, right? But but mm-hmm. it's you know it's pure it it really is escapism and I look back at reading those books and I think. I have some really wonderful memories and I have some, like if I'm being honest with myself, I think at a, at least for a part of, at least a part of my reading of those books was escapism in a, in a real, in a, in a negative sense, you know, like we were, you know, we were younger, um, obviously when we're reading those books and, you know, times in your youth can be hard, um, you know, growing up and, Sometimes I just the world wanted to go.
0: And
1: yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think I, some of, some of, I dealt with some of the hard parts of growing up by escaping into, you know, the world of Redwall, um, which I, I still think is, is, you know, for me, it was, it was, it was healthy. You know, I, I needed some, everybody needed some kind of coping mechanism to get through the harder parts of growing up. Every, I think everybody, everybody has some growing pains, um, and you cope, you cope with that in one way or the other. And reading a book is not the worst way to cope.
0: I think you turned out all right. Yeah, jury's still out, but <laughs> sure, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point, though the coping me- I mean, you know, we just kind of got off a subject about talking about one particular coping mechanism within the cocktail podcast. And I think there's a point where it is healthy. It's um, kind of comes back to the idea of like cognitive dissonance you know, the the conflicting ideas and realities that we have to deal with, you know? I mean, who hasn't, you know, graduated college or graduated high school and started a job and were given expectations in that job that just seemed impossible until one learns <laughs> that, yeah, of course the expectation is impossible, but you have to find a way to balance your work life to actually achieve something to where like you keep your job and hopefully you know progress through your career we're asked to do things that seem impossible and that is what stretches us and moves us forward sometimes it's too far forward it's unbalanced and it can break a person but i think there's i think there's a bit of health to being able to escape to a world of you know ferrets and mice battling each other with swords because through the fact that like yeah mice can't talk we know that but the conversations these mice have are still relevant to our life and the struggles they face in these stories are still relevant to us so we can escape in a sense but really all we're doing is looking at life through a different perspective at least in my opinion i mean how is that kind of how you would approach i mean any escapism literature
1: um I honestly didn't think about that, but it is a good point. I mean, I, I think there's a lot I learned about, frankly, about, about, you know, good and not good and evil, but good in the face of evil. Right. Like it's, you know, that, that kind of informed my later life. Like, you know, when you're younger, there is good and evil. When you get older, you realize it's it's a lot more complicated than good and evil. Um, But there's parts of it that aren't, you know, and, and, it's It's very easy to slowly incrementally convince yourself to be ultimately evil because you just make one mor- moral concession after another, and after a while you end up being something that you would have despised as a younger person mm. and I think you know what those books kind of taught me is that sometimes, even against all odds, you really have to Stare your moral compass in the face and stand up and do what's right within your, you know, whatever drives your moral compass. I don't want to go there necessarily. Uh, sure. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. but yeah, I didn't even really think about it that way. But I mean, there are, there's some, there is some good to kind of, you know, escaping into a world that doesn't necessarily work the way ours does, but teaches you lessons that make this, this actual world a better place. But that being said, so I br- I bring that up because you know I th- I think I think escapism. Somebody once told me I think I've said this on this podcast before, but but somebody once told me that everybody has some kind of vice, and and what I take that to mean is everybody has a coping mechanism because life is hard mm-hmm. sometimes, Mm-mm. and you've you have to deal with that, and it's and it's. You know, some there are some days. Everybody's going to have a, you know handful of days that are just awful. You know, mm-hmm. yep. everybody's going to have a worst day of their life. What do you do at the end of that day? You you, you cope with it somehow, right? And as a coping mechanism to kind of help you get through life. Escapism I think is can be very healthy. It can improve your mood, it can, you know, kind of change your perspective, it can teach you things. But there's a darker end of that spectrum, you know, and I think that that escapism can easily become very unhealthy when you when you kind of put all your your feeling and your thought into I want to be in this place rather than the actual place I I live.
0: Right, I mean like so for example, you know, I brought up Lord of the Rings. If I was convinced um, that really, truly, I am an elf, um, and I was going to change my life and live like an elf according to Tolkien's vision of how the elves lived, I think there's a a point where that can be fine. You know, there's some noble features of the elven people in those books. um, Where I start to ask questions, and I'm not here to cast judgment on anyone feeling this way or thinking this way, is you know, when you start to modify your body and go to plastic surgery to convert your ears to be elfish, and you, you take measures to that degree, and you start to leave, I don't want to say leave society, but you start to kind of edge away from society to live in a world that doesn't exist and like never existed. I mean, it was purely fiction to begin with. I think then you might start to ask some questions. I think the friends and family around that person would have um, would be wise to ask some healthy questions now obviously that's yeah. kind of a fringe case and it's kind of like the the joking case right but I think really what you're talking about if I'm if I'm reading between the lines here correctly is kind of nostalgia believing in a time that you bring that never existed
1: yeah I, so i I want to come back to nostalgia but I want to zero in on something that you just said which i think is really interesting um, at what point point, does escapism become a problem? And I don't think there's a good answer to that question. You know, you brought up the elf thing, which I think is a little bit um, further down the spectrum, but there is, I I remember (laughs) this was a world religions class um, in high school, and we're talking about, you know, the occult and Satanism and all that. And there there is a whole community of people who like want to be vampires and they, you know, mm, like mm-hmm. they'll go so far as to whittle down their, their incisors, you know, to, to fangs. Sure. Um, yeah. and they really dive into that lifestyle. And, and I, you know, that's all I'm going to say about it. Cause I just, I don't, I don't know. And I, and, and that community is big enough where I feel like you would, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to cast any judgment on, I mean, that's, It's not for me, but who's to say that, you know, those people haven't built a fantastic community that really, you know, um, empowers them in life. That's a good point. It, It might seem weird to a lot of people, but I don't think it's you know, it, it might be antisocial from a mainstream perspective, but if they have a big enough community, is it really antisocial? Uh, that's I, a good point. I think they just created a subculture.
0: Yeah, I mean, as long as they're not, like, you know, taking this step to, like, actually try and start harming people to consume their blood, then I think, like, okay, that's a line that I'm going to say you've crossed. But, yeah, if, if it's just a right. bunch of people getting together and, to your point, forming a community around this, identity that they have inside themselves, hey, I'm not going to say you're doing anything wrong there. Like more power to you as long as you're not harming, you know, that's kind of the line for me. But you
1: wonder if it, you know, so, so and again, I, I do not think there is a, there's a right answer. Well, I, I mean, there might, I, I certainly don't know the right answer, but, but where do you draw the line? Where does the behavior become antisocial, self-defeating and, you know, if you if you want so badly to be somewhere else, something else, some when else, <laughs> <laughs> sure, then you then you just discount reality and you just refuse to live in the present moment, and that could be very very unhealthy.
0: Right. I mean, that's a very that's a slip and slide that goes downhill real quick. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But where's that line? I mean, that's got to be case by case, doesn't it? I mean, there's, A, there's no way we can talk about theoreticals and be like, yep, here's the line. You know, this person crossed it, this person didn't, (laughs) you know? Yep, yep. You know, I think that's the importance of living in community and living amongst people that um, can hold you to account in your life, you know, or have accountability with you is probably a better way, a more polite way to put it, you know? I mean, if you are completely removing yourself from your family life the the kinship ties you have that might not be like i'm not going to say that's wrong or right i have no idea i don't know your situation um but i can see how you could walk down this path and be very isolated and end up in a very poor situation um again it's not for me to decide not for me to judge But I think it's something that everyone has. Everyone contemplates. I mean, I feel like that's what middle school is, right? Is realizing that (laughs) you you have a family, whatever that family is, even if that family sadly doesn't exist and you're in a foster home or something of that sort, you you still have people around you that are probably caring for you to some degree. It might only be one person, right? But then you're in this world, you know, you're in this school system where you have peers, and you have to find your place inside that group. And people want, I think ultimate. and this is an opinion, obviously, but I think people want to be known and they want to be loved. And whatever steps they take to get to that place, I'm not going to say they're wrong or right, because I don't know, like I'm not in their life, you know, if it's my, like if you're going down a path, Dave, that I think was wrong, that was going to lead you astray and be detrimental to your health, I'm going to let you know. It hasn't happened yet so i haven't had that conversation yet but it, it's not to say that that couldn't happen to you me anyone in our friend group and that's where i think it's tricky it's so much about the community interaction the fact that i think humans need each other and we are intertwined and interwoven into each other's lives which is to say i don't know where the line is i have no idea no clue what what do you
1: think I'm going to go out on a limb here and try and connect this to something that I believe we've talked about on this podcast before, but I can't remember the episode. If I think about a liminal event, it is an event within a society that basically changes all of the rules, all of the prescribed rules of how to interact in that society it just turns them on their head. And, and sorry, a, a libnoid event, not a liminal event.
0: Right, right, right.
1: But these events are very very common throughout different cultures and throughout history. Right? So so how you know the the basis of Halloween, for example, was all of the the peasantry could go to the rich people's houses and destroy property, and and wear masks, and you know maintain anonymity. You know th- it was the social order on its head. Um, Carnival is is this whole you know bacchanal celebration where you know you con- you conceal your identity and you basically just live a different life for you know a day or a series of days. Sure. Or prom um,
0: could be a night where you are stepping into adulthood in a way. And you're given more responsibility than you should have at the age of, what, 17, 18, something like that? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: But do you think that that's kind of a a manifestation of the need for human beings to have some form of escapism?
0: Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, oh, yeah I think so. I mean, off the cuff, sure. I'd I'd go with that, and
1: well, and maybe you know the fact that that there are you know these subcultures that are being created in modern society. Is that a result of the fact that we don't really have liminal events in the or limnoid events in the way that that we used to, right? I mean, Halloween is there's nothing really special about Halloween. It's slightly excuse me. It's it's slightly different than. Your average day, but not so much, you know, there's, there's not a lot of Libnoid events that really, that really, um, that, that the whole culture recognizes. They're almost, Mm. they're almost relegated to subcultures. I mean, think about probably the most popular one would be like a music festival, you know, something like Burning Man, but that's not, I mean, while that's widely known, it's not necessarily widely accepted. I know a lot of people who would never set foot in Burning Man.
0: Right, right. There's only one place where Burning Man occurs, right? It's not like in every state in the United States, in every country across the world that happens, right? I'm following you.
1: Mm-hmm. And Mardi Gras in New Orleans, you know, um, but again, it's a, it's kind of a subculture. It's not. It's not a recognized, you know, a day where everybody in society can go and do something crazy that they normally wouldn't do or live a different life as a form of escape. Not escape, as a form of just temporarily putting you in a completely different mindset, perspective, environment that just kind of helps refresh and helps helps refresh your normal day-to-day life.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, of course, I'm going to bring up ancient Rome and Saturnalia, where they, literally the slaves would act like the owners, and the owners would act like slaves. Um, which actually, incidentally, is where the term cakewalk comes from. It's a southern antebellum tradition where the slaves acted like the masters, and the masters acted like the slaves, and they would the slaves would perform what was called the cakewalk. That's why it's known as it's so easy. It was a cakewalk. Um, I think there's something to releasing social pressure and the understood norms of society, turning it on its head for a a short, well defined period of time. Just to, it's almost like play. It's almost like, you know, a six year old playing and just saying, like, oh, no, I'm going to, you know, we're going to play house, but I'm going to do it differently. We're going to do it this funny, odd way. And maybe the release of that pressure is what makes escapism so exciting and nostalgia so um, tantalizing is to think that it doesn't have to be this way. Does that, does that track with you at all?
1: It does. It does. And I almost, you know, I'm, I'm almost thinking that it's a necessary part of, of being, you know, a healthy human being and, and having a healthy human society. I mean this this might not be the best metaphor but I'm thinking of you know ecosystems ecosystems are maintained health because they they regularly kind of turn themselves on their head like you know forests without forest fires kind of turn into sort of tangled masses and they just they kind of choke themselves to death mm-hmm. but yep. there's you know a, a fire that sort of renews and just sort of re-energizes the whole ecosystem yeah And so I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is a necessary part of being human, but we've kind of, we've kind of removed a lot of the acceptable Libnoid events from, from our society, from modern Western society at the very least. How do we, how do we bring back a healthy form of escapism to prevent people from, you know, going down a very unhealthy path?